We open the Bible to Matthew chapter 1. Going to have a short series on the visit of the wise men for this Advent season. So we're going to begin with the text about their coming to Jerusalem in search of the promised king. The text will be Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2, but we'll begin our reading at Matthew 1, verse 18, and read through Matthew 2, verse 12. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When, as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife. And he knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Here we end our reading of the scriptures. Call your attention to verses 1 and 2. Our text. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the portion of Matthew 2 which we have read records one of the most familiar stories connected with the birth of our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's a story we know well. It's a story that warms the heart. Yet it is a story of great 
significance for all of God's people. Wise men come from the east. How unexpectedly. Come to Judea in search of the promised Messiah who had recently been born in Bethlehem. And they pay him homage and worship, bringing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Familiar story, a heartwarming story, and a story filled with gospel significance for us, and thus worthy of our brief meditation in the days ahead as we celebrate the birth of our Lord. One of the questions we want to answer right from the get-go is when did the events of Matthew 2 happen? Often in the popular imagination, the visit of these wise men took place the same night that Jesus was born, the same night that the shepherds visited the newborn king. However, that is not the case. Matthew 2 verse 1 gives us a time stamp. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and a more literal translation of that phrase would be after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, or during the time when Jesus had been born. The idea is not that these wise men visited the very day that Jesus was born, but they came sometime after Jesus was born. Likely after Jesus had been presented by Joseph and Mary in the temple. Sometime after that. It appears that after Jesus was born and after he was presented in the temple, Joseph and Mary went back to Bethlehem. They lived there for a little while. Likely Joseph took up the trade of carpentry and worked in Bethlehem for a time. Most likely the wise men visited Jesus a year or two after he was born. And while the text doesn't say that explicitly, there are a few things in the text that make that very likely. For one thing, the word used to describe Jesus in Matthew 2 is young child. Not an infant anymore, but a young child. And we also read in Matthew 2 verse 7 that Herod inquired very carefully of the wise men when the star that the wise men interpreted as indicating Jesus' birth, when that star appeared. And then in verse 16, we can read about Herod's evil act of murdering the children of Bethlehem. And the children which he slew were those two years of age and under. And we put those two facts together and it indicates that Jesus was probably one or two years old. Herod wanted to make sure he killed the child that The wise men came to visit and to worship. And so these events take place shortly after Jesus' birth. But now, this is meaningful history. It's meaningful history because it shows us who Christ is. What he came to do. We see that Christ is the king. He's the promised king. These wise men come and they pay him homage and they worship him. He is the king, despite the fact that he was born in such lowly circumstances, without the pomp and splendor that any other king would have. And the visit of the wise men also foreshadows the kind of work that Christ the king would do. He comes to save. He comes to draw his people nigh. To bring them to God. To draw them from afar. To draw the afar off ones nigh. Not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles and from all the nations of the earth. There is a foreshadowing here. The wonderful reality. That Christ our King is a Catholic Savior. So in this Christmas season, let's enter into this history And learn the gospel and the history of the visit of the wise men to worship the promised king. We consider our text under the theme, Wise Men Come from the East. We're going to look at their initial arrival as they begin their search for the promised and newborn king. Wise men come from the East. Let's look first at who they were. Who are these wise men? 
Secondly, what drew them? What is it that brought them from the east to Judea searching for the promised king? And then finally, why they came. That is, their intention, their purpose, their goal in coming. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... And that word behold is always an intention grabbing word. Here is something significant. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Who were these wise men? There are many things we'd like to know about them. But as is often the case in scripture, God only tells us what we need to know. There are many details we simply don't know. Such as their names. We don't know the names of these wise men. That's often the case in scripture, isn't it? The names of persons aren't given us because their names aren't important. What's important is what God is doing through them and what God is teaching us through the history that is recorded. And that's the case here. We don't know their names. Nor do we know how many wise men came to visit. The text speaks of wise men plural. There were more than one, but we don't know the exact number of that plurality of wise men. The tradition is that there were three. And that's based on the fact that these wise men gave three gifts to Jesus as they worshipped him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's possible there were three. But it may be that several wise men presented all three of these gifts together. We just don't know. Very likely it was the case that however many wise men came to visit Jesus, there would have been many other people with them. These wise men would not have made the long, dangerous journey that they did all by themselves. Travel was not a safe thing to do back in those days, especially if you were coming from a long ways away. And so these men would have come with a large company of servants and guards to protect them on the way. But the Bible does tell us two important pieces of information that we can study and gain some knowledge of who these wise men were. It tells us where they came from and what they were. Where they came from. Behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't pinpoint exactly where they were from. But it does tell us a lot. Visualize in your mind the map of Israel. Israel, and to the west you have the Mediterranean Sea. But now to the east of the land of Israel, across the Jordan River, lies the large Arabian Desert. And on the other side of the Arabian Desert is the part of Mesopotamia where Babylon is found. And just a little further east from Babylon is the land of Media and Persia. And that is most likely where these wise men came from. They came either from the land of Babylon or from the land of Persia and Media. Likely they were Persians. These wise men were likely Persians. Now, we've talked a lot about the Persian Empire lately as we've gone through the book of Esther. That Persian empire that existed in the days of Esther no longer existed in the days of Jesus Christ. That Persian empire had fallen to Alexander the Great and had been replaced by the Greco-Macedonian empire. And after Alexander's death, that empire had been divided between his generals into four successor kingdoms. But now by the time of Jesus Christ's birth, We know a new power was on the scenes. Rome, it was Caesar Caesar Augustus who issued decrees that determined the actions of people throughout the whole Mediterranean world. But now in Jesus' day, you have the Roman Empire that is exerting its influence over much of the Mediterranean. But in the land of the Medians and the Persians, there is a new Persian Empire that had arisen called the Parthian Empire. And it is likely that these three Wise men, not three, however many there were. These wise men were Persians from that Parthian empire who traveled from the east to Judea. So that's where they were from. They were likely Persians either from Babylon or from some other city or region around the Persian Gulf, which would be, in modern terms, Iran. That's where they were from. Now, what they were. That's the second important piece of information the Bible gives us. What they were. Behold, there came 
wise men from the east. The word wise men here is the word magi. And from that word magi, we get our word magician. These wise men were influential men in the east. They were likely advisors to government officials. And they were wise men, meaning they engaged in all sorts of studies. They were pursuers of wisdom. Now, this word, wise men or magi, in the scriptures often has a very negative meaning to it. The one other place in the New Testament where this word, wise men or magi, is used is Acts 13, verse 6. And in Acts 13, verse 6, we meet the wise man Elymas, or Bar-Jesus, who was a renegade Jew. And you remember, perhaps you catechism students remember who this Elymas was. He was a bad Jew who served as an advisor to Sergius Paulus, the Roman governor of Cyprus. And he opposed Paul and Barnabas when Paul and Barnabas came to preach the gospel to Sergius Paulus. He wanted to stop Sergius Paulus from coming to the Christian faith. Perhaps you remember how Paul addressed this magi, Elymas, in Acts 13. He said to him, O full of all subtlety and mischief, thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And then Paul, by the power of God, struck Elymas with blindness. That shows us the kind of persons magi often were. They were practitioners of curious arts. They were steeped in superstition. They engaged in occult activities such as divination, dream interpretation, forms of sorcery and magic. This doesn't paint a very favorable picture, does it, of wise men? Another one of the so-called sciences that magi often practiced was astrology. They would study the night sky. They would study the stars with the belief that the position and motions of the heavenly bodies determined the destinies of human beings. That superstition is alive and well today. If a few of us still get the newspaper, you see it in the horoscope section. Astrology. Due to their supposed powers and foresight, magi were employed as advisors to kings and important government officials, and therefore they were usually influential influential and wealthy men. Think of Pharaoh and Moses confronting Pharaoh and how Pharaoh employed his magicians and their counterfeit wonders to oppose Moses. Think of Nebuchadnezzar who employed an entire court of wise men, magi, astrologers, and Chaldeans. Think of Ahasuerus, who in Esther 1 verse 13 consulted his wise men who knew the times. That's the class of men that these wise men came from. But now, this word magi is not necessarily a negative term. It does not necessarily imply that these visitors to the Lord Jesus Christ were steeped in superstition and practitioners of curious arts. After all, you can read about Daniel in Daniel 5 verse 1, or rather Daniel 5 verse 11, where Daniel is described as the head, the head man of all of Nebuchadnezzar's magi. He was a wise man in Babylon. He was raised to that position, and yet Daniel was not a practitioner of that, those superstitions and those curious arts. Magi... Wise men were also sages, scholars, philosophers, scientists, learned ones. And thus, the translation that the King James gives to that word magi here as wise men is entirely appropriate here. And that's especially what these men were, by all appearances. Not so much the practitioners of curious arts, but scholars. And one particular field of scholarship they were devoted to. Not astrology, the superstition, but astronomy, the study of the night sky, the study of the stars. 
And while it's unlikely that these Magi in Matthew 2 were entirely free of the errors of their day, no one is entirely free of the errors of his or her day. Nonetheless, it seems very likely that they belonged not to the magicians, but to the sages and scholars of Babylon and Persia. That's who these men were. Fascinating. Gentiles from far away Babylon and Persia, influential men, scholars, come to see Jesus. And that brings us to the question that we want to end the first point with. What can we say now about these wise men from a spiritual perspective? Looking at the two pieces of information that the Bible gives us about them. These men come from the east. They come seeking the king of the Jews whose birth has been heralded by a star that they have seen in the sky. What does this say about them spiritually? And we can reasonably infer from the facts given in the text that these wise men were spiritually different from their peers in Persia. These wise men were believers. Believers who had become spiritually wise unto salvation through their acquaintance with the word of God and the promise of Jesus Christ that is at the core of that word and likely through their acquaintance with the Jewish community that had been spread throughout the East, that Jewish community which was the custodian of God's word. These wise men had become truly wise in that they were wise unto salvation. They were Gentile believers. And that they were believers comes out very clearly in Matthew 2 verse 2. When they arrive in Jerusalem, this is what they say, this is what they ask everyone that they run into. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Where is he? What they are doing is entirely out of harmony with what they are. Why are Persian magi coming to Jerusalem looking for someone who is the king of the Jews? Why would they take that nearly a thousand mile journey from their homeland across the Arabian desert searching for the king of the Jews? What do they mean by the king of the Jews? They're not coming to pay homage to some ethnic ruler in Judea. If they were coming, for example, to make a political move, to ingratiate themselves to the powers that were in Judea at that time, they would have gone to King Herod. Or they would have gone to the Roman authorities who now held sway over the land of Judea. Why do they come looking for this king of the Jews? They're looking for the Messiah. God's anointed king, the promised king, king of the Jews is a title of the promised seed, the promised Messiah. They are looking for a very specific person. He, they say, he that is born king of the Jews. They believed that there had been a child recently born in Judea who was born the king. Faith is the only thing That can explain their journey. Faith. Which seeks the Christ. That is the essence of faith. And that is faith's activity. Seeking Christ. That leads to the question then. If these magi are believers. What explains the faith of these Magi, these wise men, they are, from a certain perspective, the least likely believers. From a certain perspective, they are the least likely people that you would expect to come seeking the Christ. The oracles of God's word were not given to the Persians or the Babylonians. They were given to the Jews. That promise of the coming Christ was the promise that the Jews were looking for, not the Gentiles. Influential Gentile wise men? What explains? 
Here, the text doesn't tell us exactly, but again, we can reasonably infer where their faith came from. Of course, it was a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts, but the Holy Spirit works faith using means, using the means of the word. And what we know of covenant history can inform our understanding of how the Holy Spirit applied the word of the gospel to the hearts of these wise men. One of the wonderful things God used the Babylonian captivity for was that he used the Babylonian captivity to scatter seeds among the Gentiles. The Babylonian captivity was chastening and judgment upon an apostate Israel. And yet, as God chastened, he also worked this marvelous work that he scattered seeds through the Gentile kingdoms wherever the Jews were scattered. We've seen that after the Babylonian captivity, many Jews went back home. They were allowed to go back home by the decree of Cyrus, the first king of that original Persian empire. But many did not. Many stayed in the land of their captivity. And it is through contact with these Jewish communities in Babylon and in Persia that most likely these men had become acquainted with the Old Testament scriptures and the promise of the Messiah. Perhaps these men had read the prophecies of Daniel, who was an esteemed magi in Babylon. It's not very hard to see how these men, or perhaps these men in their generations, had come into contact with the word of God. Not only was there Daniel, who had been put in an influential position in Babylon, But there's a connection here to the history we just finished studying in Esther. Esther had been queen of Persia. Mordecai the Jew had been prime minister of Persia. Nehemiah had been the cupbearer of Artaxerxes, Ahasuerus' son. And remember what we read at the end of Esther 8 verse 17. How many of the people of the land became Jews? After the publication of Mordecai's decree. Now we saw that a lot of that was not genuine conversion. It was on account of fear of the Jews. But nonetheless, there were genuine conversions. It is very likely that there was a small Jewish community that originated in Persia during the days of Esther and Mordecai. And we can reasonably infer that that small Persian community of converts to the one true God had continued through the generations. And perhaps these wise men were descendants of those who had been converted in the days of Esther. It's at least a fascinating possibility, isn't it? That God used the events in the book of Esther to prepare the way for the visit of these wise men to the Christ. Covenant history is all bound and connected because it's woven together by the hand of the unseen king. What's the significance then? We've seen who these wise men are. We've seen where they're from. We've seen the fact that they are believers. We've seen the likely explanation for their faith. What's the significance now of Persian wise men Coming to visit the newly born Christ, the King. And the significance is found in the fact that these men are Gentiles. Not of the seed of Abraham according to the flesh. Yet nonetheless, they are the seed of Abraham spiritually. For they are of the faith of Abraham. The text emphasizes this fact that they are Gentiles. They are from far away. They are afar off ones. And that not just geographically. Though that is true. But they are afar off in every respect. 
These wise men represent strangers from the commonwealth of Israel. In fact, they are men who come from Israel's former land of exile, Babylon or Persia. They are the least likely people you would expect to come seeking the Christ. Influential, wealthy men from pagan Persia. The significance is that these wise men are the first fruits of the Gentiles who will be saved through this king who had been born in Bethlehem, who comes, as the angel says to Joseph, to save his people from their sins. And his people, it will be revealed, are a people far broader, far more numerous than just the Jews. His people are elect from every nation, tribe, and tongue. These wise men are the first fruits of the ingathering of the Gentiles, which will be accomplished through the saving work of this King, Jesus Christ. We've studied that concept of first fruits recently, and you remember that when the first fruits of the harvest are brought in, that first fruits represents the whole harvest that is to follow. Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. He is raised and his resurrection guarantees to us that we will also be raised with our head. And here's a beautiful truth. And here's one reason why the visit of the Magi is so heartwarming and significant for you and me. As those who are Gentiles, Brought into the commonwealth of God's people. These magi are the first fruits. Of us. Of the harvest of which we are a part of. The harvest of the nations. God's elect gathered from the nations through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Through the visit of the wise men, you can say, we are involved in this Christmas history. These wise men represent us as those who in our generations were also afar off. Those who were also aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. And yet Christ came. Christ who is our peace. Who through the shedding of his blood upon the cross makes peace. With God, so that we have peace with God, but who also makes peace between Gentile and Jew, breaking down the middle wall of partition that had existed between the two of them, and bringing both together in one body by his cross, slaying the enmity thereby. We see here the Catholic Savior that this Christ was born to be. The wise men from the East. Represent all of the sons and daughters of God who would be drawn from afar, from east, from west, from north, from south, and gathered together into the one body, the church of Jesus Christ. Another point of significance. The visit of the Magi points to and foreshadows the almighty power of Christ To save those you'd say are hopelessly lost. Remember how the Bible usually pictures magi, sorcerers, magicians. Those who are steeped in superstition. Those who are usually the agents of the devil. And yet it's magi who come to visit the Christ shortly after his birth. That displays for us the power of this Christ to overcome the strongholds of sin. To overcome even the most powerful grip that Satan can have upon a person. It is the power of Christ to break through the darkness of sin and death. To storm the devil's stronghold and to save his people. No matter how seemingly hopelessly lost this or that sheep may be. Christ comes to be an almighty Savior. Even though by human appearance, as you looked upon that little child in the manger, and now that little child in in Joseph and Mary's house in Bethlehem, veiled behind his human flesh, is the almighty Savior who is able to save even magi. Those, you'd say, who are the most far off, far gone, 
the coming of the wise men, the strands of biblical prophecy are coming together and begin being fulfilled. Haggai 2 verse 7, the desire of all nations shall come. And here we see that child, that Christ is the desire of all nations as these magi from Persia, from Babylon, desire and they come and they travel across the desert to see this king. Isaiah 60 verse 3, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. The visit of the Magi shows a new day of salvation is dawning. So let's apply this to us a moment. Jesus came. Into this world. To save sinners. And we all confess this together. Of whom I am chief. Jesus came into the world. To save all kinds of sinners. With very different backgrounds. With very different experiences. With very different upbringings. With very different family histories. And all the rest. Jesus came into the world to save his people, to save sinners and draw them into his light and draw them into the fellowship of God and to make them worshipers. That's what we see here. Again, the wise men represent us. Not only from the point of view that we are not children of Abraham after the flesh, but are Gentiles who were lost in our former generations. But we are people of so many different backgrounds. We are people with different experiences. We are are people with different faults and failures, sins, troubles, and all of the rest. But Christ is a Savior who saves even the worst of sinners. Who saves all kinds of sinners. And draws us nigh. What a comfort to us. Even as we confess, I am the chief of sinners, we rejoice and we exclaim, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. But then there's an application for how we, sinners saved by grace, look at other sinners. Jesus Saves people we wouldn't expect. Jesus gathers his church. From people we wouldn't say. That's going to be an elect child of God. How do we view people? It's so very easy to write people off. Looking at their background. Looking at their life circumstances. Looking at a sin in their life that is dominating them right now and say, they're too far off. They're too far gone. But what does this history show us? Those that the Jews would have written off, Magi, Persians, way out there, God brought them nigh. They came to visit the Christ. When the vast majority of the Jews ignored the Christ. And the application is this. We must not write other people off. Or presume to make judgments about whether they are savable or not. Or whether they are too far gone. This must inform the way we view other people. With mercy. With love. This must control how we view people on the mission field. How we view people when we engage in evangelism work. We don't just reach out to people who are like us. We mustn't think that only the people who are most similar to us are savable. Christ is a Catholic Christ who gathers from every nation, tribe, and tongue, yes, but who also saves all sorts of sinners. Sinners are respectable middle class Americans. Sinners who are from the poorest and the lowest rungs of society. Sinners who were prostitutes. Sinners who were gang members. 
Every kind. That's the powerful Savior we have. And that truth must shape, must shape how we bring the gospel and how we view one another and others outside the church. God is a God who brings the afar off ones nigh. Well, now we come to the most mysterious part of the text. And the most mysterious part of the text is what drew the Magi to come seeking the Christ. Verse 2 says, in the Magi's words, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east. And there they explain what drew them, what caused them, what led them to take this journey from their homeland to Judea. They saw his Star. They saw a star in the sky and somehow they connected it to the birth of the promised Christ. They knew that the Christ was born because they saw his star. We've noted already that these magi were not likely astrologers steeped in that superstition, but they were astronomers. They were studiers and watchers of the night sky. One night, they were studying the heavens. Whether they were together, perhaps at one of the observatories built in Persia or Babylon for this purpose, or whether they were upon the rooftops of their own houses individually, watching the night sky. One night, they saw something amazing. Something they had never seen before. A star shining brightly in the sky to the west of them, in the direction of Judea. And this star had not always been there. It's not that they just overlooked it and now they see it. No, this star shined far too brightly to be missed. And these men knew the skies like the back of their hands. They knew the positions of the constellations and the planets and the stars. No, this star was new. It hadn't been there before. A real star. That's what they saw. A real star. Some have tried to dismiss this as they've looked at the biblical account. They try to explain it away as some sort of natural phenomenon that would have impressed the ancient mind, but which modern science can easily explain. Some say it was a supernova, a star that had reached its end of life and had exploded, and the Magi saw the light of that explosion. Others say it was a comet. Others say it was some peculiar alignment of the planet, of a planet and the moon. But the Bible simply says, They saw a star, and we accept what the Bible simply says. A star, a real star. A star that was not there before, but a star now that has appeared because God has given it a special purpose. And is that so hard to believe? The God who made the sun, moon, and stars on the fourth day by the word of his power. The God who stretched out the heavens as a tent. The God who telleth the number of the stars and knows them all by name. The God who made the stars, they're the work of his fingers. He set them all in place. Cannot this God cause a special star to appear when he wants it to so that it may shine as the herald of the birth of his son? Cannot this God use his own creation in a marvelous and unusual way to signify the wonder of all wonders? Of course he can. The Magi saw a real star that they had not seen before because it was not shining before. And this was the Lord's doing. His marvelous doing. He appointed this star to be the herald of the advent of Of his son. A real star. But no ordinary star. In fact when we we look at what the text in Matthew 2 says about this star. We can conclude that it was a miraculous star. One that God caused to shine just for this period of time. The star appeared suddenly. It was not there before. And it disappeared for a time. And then reappeared when the wise men were journeying to Bethlehem. That's clear from Matthew 2 verse 9. Matthew 2 verse 9 also tells us that the star moved. 
Lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. That's behavior very unlike the stars that we observe in the night sky when we look up. We don't see the stars moving. And that this star was able to pinpoint with its light the very house where Jesus was. That's again a marvel, a wonder that God performed for this very purpose. There's also this, nobody else, it seems, noticed this bright star. Other magi didn't see it. Other people didn't come to the house that this star pinpointed for the magi. This is the Lord's doing. A real star, but a miraculous star that God prepared for this very purpose. Because all things, As Colossians 1 1 verse 16 says, all things were created by him, that is Christ, and for him, that is Christ. It's an interesting question here. When did this star, his star, come into being? Was it one of the stars God created in the beginning? Or was it a star that God specially created at this juncture in history? Both are possible. I tend to prefer the view that this was a star that God created in the beginning, but caused to shine at this particular moment. Think about it. Christ was not God's plan B. Christ was plan A from the beginning. And it fits with the Bible's teaching that all things are for Christ. That in the beginning, God would fashion one particular star, His star, and withhold that star from shining its light until the fullness of time had come and the Christ was born. And then God causes that star to shine its light upon the earth to direct these magi to the house in Bethlehem where the child was. All things are created by him and for him. And built into the creation from the beginning was his star. God made all the stars, the heavenly host, for signs, Genesis 1.14 says. This star was made as a very special sign, pointing to the Christ. Well, what is the significance? What is the significance of this star that drew the Magi to Jerusalem? Well, in the first place, it shows again that these Magi were believers. Perhaps the question arises in our minds, how did they connect this star that suddenly appeared in the night sky? How did they connect it with the gospel promise of the coming Christ? Because they knew the scriptures. It wasn't the superstition of astrology that led them to make this connection. But it was the scripture. They were studiers not only of the night sky, but studiers of the scripture. And very likely they knew the prophecy of Numbers 24 verse 17. Where God, through that renegade prophet Balaam, said this. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out Of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A star shall arise out of Jacob. And they connected this star that appeared in the west over Judea. They connected it with that promise of the scriptures. That connection of course was made by the power of the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. Perhaps the Lord even gave them a kind of special revelation to help them make that connection. But whatever the case may be, they saw the star and they connected it with the prophecy of scripture and they knew, they knew the promised Christ was born. And so they came. A significant star. A star that is significant in the second place because it also gives us a picture, a sign. Of who this Christ is and what he will do. Jesus comes to be the light of the world. The last prophet of the Old Testament spoke of Christ. in Malachi 4 verse 2 as the son of righteousness who would arise with healing in his wings. 
Isaiah 9 verse 2, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. You remember after Zechariah' tongue was loosed and he sang that song by the inspiration of the Spirit. He speaks of Jesus Christ in Luke 1 verses 78 and 79 as the day spring, the day spring from on high that hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's Jesus Christ. What a fitting sign for his coming, a star. Shining brilliantly in the dark night sky. He is the light of the world who comes to give light to his people. And to guide their feet in the paths of peace. He comes to conquer the powers of darkness. He comes to deliver his people from the clutches of the darkness. He comes to deliver them from the black night of their sins. In which they wander and in which they will perish. Except he give them light. He comes to banish that dreadful looming shadow of death. And hell itself. He comes to shine into the hearts of his people. To change them into the same image from glory to glory. He comes to give sight to the blind. To save the lost. He is the day spring from on high. Brings us out of darkness into his marvelous light. and Into the light and life of fellowship with God. Reconciliation. Peace. He was born to shine like a star in the darkness. He was born to be that rising sun of righteousness. Whose light would conquer the blackest darkness on the cross. There, in that deepest darkness, the Son of Righteousness would rise and He would stretch out His healing wings upon the cross. And as He shed His blood, and as that blood dripped from the cross, He spread His healing wings over His people. The healing rays of His forgiveness shined upon His people. The transforming rays of His grace would come to us and change us from glory to glory. He is our light. That star that guided the wise men to Him, that shone above the house in Bethlehem, was but a faint glimmering picture of who he is and what he would accomplish. Well, finally we end with why these wise men came. They were drawn and they were guided by this star. They come to Judea into Jerusalem. They came for one purpose. And the wise men themselves say what their purpose is in verse 2. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. They came to worship, to bend the knee, to praise, to adore this promised Christ. And it's amazing, isn't it? These wise men understood the gospel promise so well. They understood it, in fact, better than so many of the Jews in the land of Israel. They understood who this Newly born child was. And that he deserved to be worshipped and praised. And that's why they came. That's why they came from such a long ways. Without a plane. Without a car. On camelback. Hundreds of miles. Weeks on the road. A hard journey through difficult desert terrain. Leaving behind their duties, their affairs, their families in Persia. A dangerous journey. Perils of robbers. Perils of weather. Perils of all sorts. And yet, these wise men undertake this massive journey. Why go through all of that? We are come to worship Him. To worship Him. To see. The promised Messiah. We've seen his star. Now we're come to see him. 
The simple faith, simple God-given faith of these wise men shone as brightly as the star they followed. They'd cross the desert to see and to worship the Christ. Thus, when they arrived in Jerusalem, they immediately begin asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? And that was the logical place to start their search. Apparently, they didn't know about the Old Testament prophecies or didn't understand them, which said that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. They come to David's royal city, a logical place to start looking. And they begin asking everyone they run into, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Notice, they don't ask whether he is born. They're certain of that. They ask, where is he? Their question is not if, but where? Where is he? And how shocked and disappointed they must have been when they arrived in Jerusalem and found Jerusalem going on as if nothing had happened. There was no celebration. There was no acknowledgement of the birth and the coming of this king, of the promise of the gospel fulfilled. And as they asked around, nobody knew what they were talking about. No one had any interest in what they were saying. In fact, the only ones who took interest would be Herod, who became very concerned about a perceived threat to his own power. And as they inquire about the whereabouts of this promised king, even their inquiries don't generate excitement. What a contrast. The promised king is born. Even now he's in Bethlehem at Jerusalem's doorstep. And yet the city of David, the people of Israel, take no notice. Everyone goes about their business as if nothing has happened. The amazement after the report of the shepherds had been short-lived. Nobody but Gentile magi from far away Persia are looking for the king of the Jews. So great was the spiritual darkness in Israel at that time. And that points out, too, the humiliation and suffering of Jesus on behalf of his people, begun at his lowly birth. He is the king who has come, who is worthy of all honor, and yet he's almost universally ignored. Truly, he emptied himself and made himself of no reputation. He was rejected of men, that we might never be rejected of God, but accepted as his sons and as his daughters. But now a concluding application. We see the lengths the Magi went to see and to worship the Christ. What lengths will you and I go to see him, to hear him, to honor him? As we draw nearer to the day of the second coming of the king, the spiritual darkness of our age grows deeper and deeper. What lengths will we go to to see and to hear and to honor our king, our Christ? You consider the Magi, they crossed the Arabian desert. They traveled hundreds of miles at great peril and cost to themselves, guided only by the light of his star. We have the light of the complete gospel. What do we do with it? What do we do with what we have been given? Does the light of the gospel draw us that powerfully so that we cannot be silent? So that we cannot just go about our business, but we must, week by week, day by day, go to this Christ, see Him, hear of Him, worship Him, adore Him. What is God's unspeakable gift worth to us? Is it your passion, your desire to grow more and more in the knowledge of him, to love him more and more deeply, to serve him more and more faithfully? Is it your burning desire to live all of life for him? The history of the wise men's visit calls us to take our spiritual temperature. Does the fire that was in their hearts have a home in our hearts as well. By God's grace, may that faith and love for Christ live in our hearts too. Let us, week by week, day by day, seek and worship Christ our King. Even when it costs us, even if we have to cross the desert for Him, He is worthy. Amen.
Faithful God and Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this gospel history. Bless it to our hearts. Encourage us by it. May we, with the same fervency as the wise men, seek and worship Christ, our King and Savior. Amen.